Thanks, Cal. It's great to be here, and thank you again for the opportunity. I'm glad you got the memo about dress code yeah, tonight, yeah, Calvin. It's good. Really good. That's, uh, that's cool. <laughs> Been great to be back. I really enjoy being here. It's two or three months since the last time I was here. A lot can happen in two or three months. It's uh, just great to be back. I'm older, and uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, we welcomed our 25th grandchild, and, which was amazing. So that was extraordinary. A lot can happen in that time. Queensland played the worst game they've ever played in that same time, so... So it's a, it's a big time. Cool. Hey, I wanted to... Uh, we're continuing on to look at in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, an amazing church, really, and a, a sort of a, a metropolis of all sorts of uh, philosophies and cultures, but that's what we're going to look at tonight as we continue on in Ephesians 4. But I want to ask a question before we start, and the question is this. Is Christianity a way to life? or a way of life? Is it a way to life, or a way of life? I want you to think about that, and, and while you're doing that, I'm going to read some scripture to you, and I'm going to start reading the passage that you would have had read last week, because it forms a bit of a background to the one that goes on that we're looking at tonight. So I'm going to start at um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and the read you had that read last week, I think, and then read on from there. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you've not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth, as in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You would have had that read to you last week. It goes on from there. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And it starts the beginning of chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Pretty heavy stuff. Pretty heavy instruction. 
Is Christianity a way to life or a way of life? Well, the answer is it's both, as long as we get the sequence right. It's, right, it's both if we get the sequence right. It's, it's right if we get there's a, there's a place to come as a way to life that then must ensue in a way of life. You don't get to, to the way of life in Jesus simply by living a good life. You have to come to life first. You have to come. That's the way to life. Jesus called himself the way. And also, we as a church were first called the way before we're ever called Christians. We're the way. You come a way to Jesus, to life, and then you live a way of life. And that's what it's about. And the book of Ephesians kind of spells that out very clearly. The first three chapters that you've been through really talk about the way to life. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And then verses chapters 4 to 6 talk about the way of life. If that's true, if you've come to that place, then there's a way to live. And that's how we come to some of that really practical stuff tonight. But I want to explain, I want to just remind you and refresh you with how you come to that way of life. Way back in Ephesians chapter 2, the second chapter, you know these, these scriptures very well. It says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the way to life is simply by the grace of God and trusting in that grace for your own life. That's the way to life. You can't get the way to life any other way by being great, by being wonderful, by being terrific, by being holy. No, you start with Jesus and his grace, and then you move to live that out in practice and in place. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul in the very first few verses of that letter spells out the things that are yours as a provision that God has given you by his grace. I'm not going to read the whole first, 80, first 14, 15 verses to you, but I, I'm going to spell out those things that God says are yours when we come to follow Jesus. He says you've been chosen before the creation of the world. You think about that. You've been chosen before the creation of the world. Before the road that you drove on or rode on or walked on to get here today, before the ground that this church is built on where you're sitting was ever created, you were chosen. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's true for you. He says you've been chosen before the creation of the world. He says you've been redeemed through his blood. In other words, we've all lived our way of life. We've all done our own thing and gone our own way. And we've paid the price for that. But God has paid a bigger price. God has paid a massive price, a redemption price to bring us back. We've been paid that price, the blood of Christ, for that redemption. He says we've been shown the mystery of his will. We've been shown the mystery of his will. We sometimes think it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle. God's, God's will is a puzzle. And it is sometimes. But it may, not, it may be such a puzzle sometimes just simply because we're so busy or agitated or preoccupied or whatever that we don't kind of seek him enough. Who, who knows? But he says we've been given the mystery of his will. 
He says you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That means God has given you everything you need to live out the life that God wants you to live. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if that's true, here's the question. If I've got every spiritual blessing in Christ, what spiritual blessing do I not have? And why that's really important. Because I see a lot of people just chasing the next blessing, the next blessing, the next blessing. God says, I've given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. It doesn't mean God can't bless you on and on. But you've got everything you need. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the last thing he says there is, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with the Spirit. God has given you His Spirit to dwell within you as a promise for what's to come. Now, that's what God has... You haven't earned that. You can't deserve that. You don't merit that. You can't buy that. That's by grace. That's what you have. That's the way to life. And the first three chapters spell that out and flesh it out in a bit more detail. And then it turns the corner from, if, if you like, the inspiration of chapters 1 to 3 to the instruction of chapters 4 to 6. And you heard, would have heard the beginning of those last week, how we're meant to. And he talks about the, the way the Gentiles block what God is saying, what God is doing. He talks about things, really strong words, like the futility of their mind. They're alienated from God. They're... they're, they're, they're the, the hardness of their thinking, the darkness of their thinking. It's a word that's the word that we use for it, the Greeks use for eclipse, where there is something that stands between the light and you. And that's what he says. I mean, in the futility of their mind, which was caused by the blindness of their heart. See, there's a there's a soil that helps. It's not just I become a Christian now, I'm living all a good life. There's a soil which helps you live the way God wants you to live. It's the soil of your mind and your heart, the combination of the two. That's what Paul is saying. They, they live this way in the futility of their mind because of the blindness of their heart. Some versions say the hardness of their heart. It's a word that the scriptures use. It. We, 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 the word is porosis. We know we use that word today for a calcification or a hardness. It was used in those days for bones and for timber when it became petrified. The hardness or the blindness of your heart will affect your thinking and those two things together build the soil for a godly life or otherwise. And then he comes into the instruction. But he, You know, the, the scriptures talk about make sure get it, you get those things right because your mind is the place of transformation and your heart is the place of hope. And when you have a soil that's built on transformation and hope, it makes a difference. Paul writes to the Roman church. You know the scripture well, I'm sure. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So your mind is part of that soil. It's a half of that soil. It needs to be transformed by the Spirit of God who's the seal within us. And then there's your heart, which is the place of hope. You know, in the, in the very first chapter of Paul's letter, this one here to the Ephesians, he prays for the church. 
And one of the things that he prays for, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. You know, you and I have got two sets of eyes. We've got the eyes of our head, which don't see hope. And we have the eyes of our heart, which do, which can. You know, I don't know about you, but the eyes of your head, what they actually see is desperation, frustration. I don't know, but I watch the news most nights of the week. I read the newspaper most day. And when I watch things with the eyes of my head, I see desperation. I see injustice. I see war. I see famine. I see, I see disease. The eyes of my head do not pick up a lot of hope. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened because that's where hope comes. And when you can build transformational minds with hopeful hearts, then comes the soil and the groundwork for the living out the way of life that God wants us to live. And it's that soil, it's that sort of foundation that Paul goes on to spell out some specific things, a whole bunch of things actually in the chapter we looked at, we looked at tonight. He says, once you've learned Christ... The phrase, the phrase you, once you've learned Christ, then start to live out. And he talks about this thing, this wardrobe, where you put off some things and you put on some other things. It's the, it's the analogy of clothing. You put off some clothes and you put on other clothes. You put off some stuff and you put on other stuff. You put off the stuff and it's, it's your responsibility. We don't sit back and go, take this away. If you know what it is, you put it off. And you put on the stuff that's helpful and healthy. You put on the stuff that's transformational, the stuff that brings hope. And you take off the stuff that brings despair and ungodliness. And he talks about uncleanness and lasciviousness. Big word. Talks about that. And then I want to talk at some of the... He points to the specifics. You've got this big picture of, of, of who we are in Jesus. What the way to Jesus looks like. And if you're, you're not in that place yet tonight, tonight would be a good time to think about the way to Jesus. Once you have that way to Jesus, then now he's starting and you've got that, that mind and your heart being transformed and hopeful along the way. Then comes the place of making some choices to put stuff off and to put stuff on. You've got to see it in that framework or else it just looks like behavior modification. And the gospel's not behavior modification. In fact, in the banner you see at the beginning, it says, it quotes Dallas Willard saying, the gospel is about spiritual transformation, not behavior modification. It's not just doing a few nice things and getting there. And I want to summarize some of the things that he said in that scripture I read before. A couple of summaries. It's about relationships. It's about how we live in this world in which we live in the church in which we live, in the community we live, in the sporting team we live. And it's about those relationships need to be based on truth and reality, not falsehood and deception. That's the first thing he says. On truth and reality, not falsehood and deception. Verse 25, I read it out to you before. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He says, don't let any falsehood come out of your mouth. Put that away. It's about 
Relationships that are built on truth, not falsehood or deception. You know, we know well enough to know that relationships can be all sorts of things. Relationships can be approval seeking. They can be game playing. They can be manipulative. They can be, you know, they can be relationships of eggshells. My dad was a really bad alcoholic and we had to walk around the house really on eggshells so we didn't upset him. You know what relationships on eggshells are like. You can be one-sided and they can be approval-seeking. And when they are, they're built on falsehood. And the Apostle Paul says, put off that stuff and put on truth. Speak the truth. The truth will set free. Relationships that are built on truth and reality, not falsehood and deception. He says, build relationships that are based on healthy emotion and not unresolved anger. Healthy emotion, not unresolved anger. How many of you know God has emotions? He does. Talks about an emotion of grief. Scripture said, we read it out, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That means God can be grieved. He has the emotion of grief at least and lots of others. Sometimes we think God is just some emotionless, stoic deity who calls down orders from above. No, no, no. We know he grieves. We know he did it more than once. He still does it. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But there are all sorts of emotions in relationships. Joy, delight, excitement, anger, frustration, difficulty, all of those. And he picks on anger. And he says, everyone gets angry. Even God gets angry. But when you are angry, and in fact some versions give the the verb, be angry. So it's not wrong to be angry. It's just not wrong to be angry the wrong way. Be angry, but do not sin. There is a place to be angry. And later on, he talks about a place to be angry that's not healthy, rage and anger. But here he says, be angry and do not sin. There's a right sort of anger. And it's primarily an anger that's not about you. It's about things out there. It's about other things. It's about the right sort of anger. It's about, sometimes we get angry. That's probably my phone, but thank you. Thank you, Katie. How terrible is that? Wow. Somebody must have turned it back on again. That's all I can say. Sometimes most of our anger is that we don't get our way or we don't get what we want to get or that we, somebody isn't the, top, the version of themselves we want them to be. That's the anger we sometimes have. And the added difficulty is it's fun to be angry, isn't it? It's fun to be angry. If you don't find it fun to be angry, you're not doing it properly. You need to do it better. It is fun to be angry, but it can cause great grief, great pain, if it's the wrong kind. It's okay to be angry about injustice or about the poor not getting fed or all of that stuff. But Paul says there needs to be a quick settlement. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. The devil has a foothold and loves it. So it's based on healthy emotion, not unresolved anger. He says the way we live is based on building people up, not putting them down. Boy, that's so important. If we're really honest, 
if I'm really honest, let me be honest myself, if I'm really honest, sometimes when you put people down, it's to make you feel better. And you feel better by putting people down. He says, don't do that. He says in verse 29 of chapter 4, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary edification or building up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. How do you impart grace? Because if you don't, it, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Spirit of God who lives in us. Relationships that are based on putting, building up, not putting down. Matthew says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, your heart's the soil. Out of the abundance of that heart, the mouth speaks. It's not, it's not speaking in such a way that's syrupy, Christian jargon. It's not that. It's the truth. It's honesty. It's reality. It's other-centric, but it's dynamic. It actually builds people up. doesn't mean you can't be truthful. Be healthily critical, but it's all about motive. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Two more things he says about this kind of living. He says it's based on me changing me, not me changing you. In reality, it's God changing me, but it's about my responsibility to change me. It's not my responsibility to change you. That's the important thing. It's cr crucial. He says in verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, etc. Chapter 5, verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He's not saying, I want to tell you to tell other people to do that. He's saying, you do that. Walk in love. Walk in love. It's not about me changing me. It's not about me changing me. It's, it's, it's about me changing me, not you changing, not me changing you. Confusing. Healthy relationships depend not on you changing others. They depend on you getting your mind and your heart right so that you're able to be changed. That you're able to be changed. That's really important. And where the rubber hits the road, it's the putting off, putting off stuff, putting off things in our life that are about trying to do it out there and putting on the things that change it in here that impact our lives and make a difference. Put off bitterness, rage and anger, but build a spirit of thankfulness and generosity, grace. That's our choice. That's our choice. It's important. You know, when, one thing we've got to understand is that we are more important in the work of God than we think we are. We are. Let me try and give you an illustration of that. Do you... Tonight, you hear two voices. You hear what I say to you, but you also hear what you say to you about what I say to you. So I say something, and you say to yourself, oh, he might have got that right, or that's rubbish, or I'm going to talk to him afterwards, or I'm going to abuse him or send him an email. <laughs> that's when I say, you, it's what you say to you. And let me tell you something, what you say to you about what I say to you is much more weight than what I say to you. 
And that's the way we operate with God, by the way. We don't want to think that way, but it's true. We hope it's the same. But when God says to you something, and then you say to yourself something about what God says to you, and the way, that's more weighty than what God says to you. I wish it wasn't, but it is. So God says to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And you say to you, God doesn't know my boss. And what you say to you about what God says to you has much more weight than what God said to you. We don't want to admit it, but it's true. We hope they're the same. We hope there's congruence. We hope there is. But it's not about me changing you. It's about you changing you. Trusting the Spirit of God to work in your heart and your mind. It's important. And the last thing he says, and this is really important, he says it's based on forgiving others as God has forgiven you. Based on forgiving others as God has forgiven you. This is really crucial. It's, a, it's if you like, the tenderness of God. That last verse in chapter 4, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Really, really important. I want to share a story with you. This is a picture of, I was in Rwanda a few years ago now, and uh, I was on the way to the airport with a group of people. It's probably the most, one of the most amazing church services I've ever been in. And it was just, it was a week before the 20th commemoration, if you like, of the Rwandan genocide, where almost a million people were slaughtered in 100 days in, in Rwanda. So I was in, that was in 1994, this is just 2014 I was there, and on the way to the airport, we stopped at this church. Uh, it was an Anglican church, and uh, we were a couple of hours spare before we had to catch a flight. So we stopped there. I met Pastor Francis. who was a beautiful man, just a lovely, lovely guy. And then he said to me, Tim, before the service, he said, Tim, when, when the time is right, would you come up and read the scriptures? And also, would you, uh, would you introduce the team to the church? I said, sure, do that. So time came. The service was very much like our service night. It was some great singing, and, and then there was announcements, and he asked me up, and I read the scriptures and announced the team. And I got down, and he said, today we're going to pray for Christopher and his wife, Christina. Christopher was the sound man. He was over about there where that camera is. He was sitting over there uh, with a, with a four-channel mixer on a car battery working the sound out for the service. He said, we're going to pray for Christopher and his wife, Christina, who wasn't there because this week the man who slaughtered Christina's parents 20 years ago confessed to it and told the family where they'd buried the body. And it was buried, the bodies were buried at the bottom of a pit latrine. And, and Pastor Francis said, today the church, we're going as a church on Thursday to dig up the remains of her parents and give them a proper burial. I want us to pray for Christopher and Christina today. Then he said, Tim, would you come up and pray with me? And I I was sitting in the front seat. I was just bawling my eyes out. And he invited us. Fortunately, he prayed. I didn't have to pray. He prayed. But I, I and Chris, Christopher was there and, and I prayed for Christina. And it was just an amazing time. And, and uh, you know, I did what you're not supposed to do. And we pray. I opened my eyes. And I looked at 
Christopher, tears are pouring down his face, tears are pouring down my face, and we prayed for him. And, you know, the service went on. It was kind of almost a bit, almost too normal. And afterwards, I got the backstory, and it's this, that Christopher and Christina, Christopher was from the Hutu tribe, who were the perpetrators of that injustice at that point in time. And she was from the Tutsi tribe. Been married for 10 years. So in that, before that happened, they had to work out forgiveness before they ever got married. And the thing about forgiveness, and this is where I want to bring it home to you, forgiveness is so important because we think forgiveness, and this is what we do as Christians sometimes, we think forgiveness is just a decision to make. We make a decision and we forgive. And then we wonder why the heck later on, the next time we see the person who we forgive, we still feel angst. We feel uptight. But I've made a choice to forgive them. How do I still feel? Like I want to get back. We forget the second part of forgiveness. The first one is an instantaneous choice. The second one takes time and it's surrendering the right to get even. That's the second part of forgiveness. Important part. It does take some time to surrender that right. And here's where it's going to sound unchristian to you because before you surrender the right to get even, you have to claim the right to get even. Because natural justice says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But forgiveness, as God talks about it, is supernatural. You surrender, supernaturally surrender that right to get even. And it still takes some time. That's exactly how Jesus forgave you, by the way. He chose to forgive you and he surrendered the right to get even. Forgiveness is crucial. This relationship we have to have is based on forgiveness as God has forgiven you. So you want to live this stuff out? It's a way to life, but it's a way of life. It's a, it's a gutsy, radical way of life. It's a, it's a life that makes a difference. It's a life that changes people. It's, it's a life that's based on the transformation of your mind and the hopefulness of your heart that becoming the soil that now I can live a life that makes a difference in this world in which I live. And God can use you more than you even think he can. He can do that. Sometimes we just need to pray, God, today give me an unoffendable heart. You might be here tonight, you're exploring the way to Jesus. You're in that first phase where I'm trying to explore what it means and people have talked to me or someone's brought me or someone keeps talking to me and are exploring the way to Jesus. And tonight you think, well, I I need to find more about this grace or I need to come to a place of receiving this grace that God has given to me. I might need to understand that I I can be someone who has the blessings that God needs to give me to live this life out. I might be someone who, who God has paid a redemptive price for. That might be you tonight. You're on the way to Jesus, and tonight would be a great opportunity to respond to that. Or you may be here tonight, and you know there's a need in your life to put off some stuff and to put on some stuff. You know it's been a long while or too much of a, a while since your mind has been transformed. Your heart's not as hopeful as you'd love it to be. And tonight you need to say, I I just need God to open the eyes of my heart and open the spirit of my mind. I need that to happen tonight. You might be here tonight and you realise that 
your minds become a little dull. Your life and your heart become a little dull. There's something that's come between you and the light. You might need to deal with that tonight and confess that you might know that tonight you're here and you need to change your, your wardrobe. You might have to put off some stuff and put on some stuff. You might be here tonight and realise your heart's got a little hardened. There's a little bit of porosis that's kicked in, a little bit of a calcification of the heart. That might be you tonight. And I want to give you the opportunity tonight to say, that's me, and, and I want to pray for you tonight because if you're on that way to life, praise God that you could find it tonight. In that way of life, you might need to allow God to move in your heart and life and mind to do that. So I'm just going to ask you tonight very clearly and I'm not going to elongate that or drag it out, but if, if you're here tonight and you're wanting to discover the way to life or there's something in your life that needs to be resolved or sorted, that somebody needs to be forgiven maybe, you need to surrender the right to get even. I want you to stand where you are right now. I know that's a bit of a brave thing in some way to do. But I'm going to leave it open just for a few, few seconds just to, to say, stand right now. I want to pray for you in discovering the way to life and the way of life right now. No music in the background, no, no nothing. It's just for you to say, God, I want, you to, I, I want you to change my heart. I want you to change my mind. I want to come to the way of life and the way to life tonight. Just feel free to stand just for another few seconds and I'm going to pray for you. You feel free to join those folk who have already stood tonight. Let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you and praise you for the courage of folk who stood tonight just to indicate to you in a practical way, God, I need to know the way to life or I need to know the way of life and there's something blocking. Father, people may be here tonight because there's a little hardness of heart that's crept in somehow. I don't know why and I don't need to know why. Or, but that's just maybe you've crept in or a little blindness of mind. A little something that's in there that needs to be put off and put away. And God, I want to pray that you'll give the strength to each person who stood tonight for that reason. To make that difference and to make a change. Father, I pray that you'll just work in people's hearts and lives tonight. I pray, Lord God, if people are standing up, because tonight's the night I'm going to find a way to Jesus. I'm going to find the grace of God tonight. I've been thinking about it. I've been toying with it. I've been, you know, curious. But tonight is the night. I want to find, my, I want to find Jesus and I want to find his life and his fullness. Father, for whatever it is tonight, whatever people have stood for, I know you're with them. God, I know you want to, to take them on. I, want, I know you want transformed minds. I know you want hopeful hearts. I know you want new life tonight. So God, I pray for each person tonight that you'll take them and use them for your glory and for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Please grab a seat for a minute. Thanks again for, for your courage in doing that. I want to just say this. If, if you stood tonight to find Jesus, you need to tell someone tonight. You need to make it clear to someone. Talk to Cal or one of the people at the desk. Just let them know tonight is a night. They're going to celebrate with you. 
You think you're going to have a, a feed tonight for some reason. You're going to have a feed for a much greater celebration tonight. It's great. But if you stood for just something in, in you that needs to be resolved and hearts opened or minds restored or whatever it might be, I want you to tell someone. Just make it known to someone. Say, you know, tonight, and get someone to pray for you. Maybe you want to come out here and get some prayer after. So maybe someone you know, just shoot across an aisle or I walk out the back and say, would you pray for me? Tonight was a significant night. Tonight was a night that needed to happen for me. So would you please do that as we conclude? I should have called the band up half an hour ago, but I didn't, so we're here. Thanks, guys.